Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome back to another Building the Future episode. I'm your host, Dan Rundy. This episode marks the first in a three-part series we're doing in partnership with our friends at RTI International on Energy and Development. In today's episode, we're joined by Andy Herskowitz, a minister counselor in the Senior Foreign Service, who's been the coordinator of the U.S. government's Power Africa program since 2013. We're also joined by my friend Paul Weisenfeld. Paul is the executive vice president for international development at RTI International in North Carolina. Guys, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for hosting us. So, Andy, let's start with what is Power Africa? So Power Africa is an initiative that's been around since 2013 with the goal of doubling access to electricity in sub-Saharan Africa. It's the work of 12 different U.S. government agencies, over 170 partners, including 20 development partners, partners like the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and the governments of Sweden, France, Norway, Israel, Japan, to all bring people access to electricity and increase uh, power generation. I love it. Let's talk about how did it come about? Because I think there's an interesting origin story around Power Africa. So what happened, it happened sort of two different ways. Um, There was a team of people from the previous administration, senior level officials who took a trip to Africa, and they were looking at how six of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world were in sub-Saharan Africa. And they were wondering what is the key constraint to their continued growth. And of course, during the trip, power kept going out wherever they went. They saw when they were in Kenya that if a clothing manufacturer that's producing 40,000 garments a month, the power suddenly goes out and they have to use dirty diesel generators that are expensive. They're not going to be able to compete with China and with others. And they wanted to figure out how can we solve this constraint? Similarly, there was a a Hill visit as well. Members of Congress traveled also to Africa. And so while the administration was coming up with Power Africa, the Hill was developing their own concept for Electrify Africa. Yeah, I want to come back to the difference or the how they sync up. But one of the things I'm taken with about this is that this was a development initiative that sees Africa as a business opportunity. Paul, you served in Africa when you were at AID, right? Yes, I did, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about where you served and how, you know, this issue of seeing Africa as a business opportunity? Because I think it's one of our biggest challenges as a country is to not see Africa just as a development challenge, but as a business opportunity. I think this merges both of those really, really nicely. Yeah, I think that's right. So I I served in South Africa. I served in Zimbabwe, um, in Egypt as well. And across the continent, obviously, I've traveled to to many other countries across the continent. When I was in South Africa, I was regional and had the opportunity to travel all over. And I think what Andy said is really, really important and cannot be overstated that six of the fastest growing economies are in Africa. That's if you think about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we all thought Asia is the powerhouse, the Asian tigers. And it would have been hard 20 years ago to imagine that six of the 10 fastest growing economies are in Africa. This is really an important moment for Africa. And the constraint of energy for private sector companies like Andy described could be devastating. So we've got this momentum, this energy. Africa is at a moment where it can make a deep inroad into poverty, but it needs to overcome the lack of energy. And it needs to overcome the lack of investment. I I totally agree. I think there's been the argument that this is going to be the Asian century. I would argue that if we give it 20 more years, it's going to be the African century. And that if you add up the number of Africans in 2045, 
there's going to be more Africans than Chinese and Indians combined. Right. But they've got to take advantage of the demographic dividend by getting things right across the policy framework that's impairing private sector investment in energy, kind of barrier to private sector investment yeah. And the key part is going to be it's the job creation. It's going to be the private sector that creates those jobs. So even this model of governments managing a lot of infrastructure, they're not going to be able to do it. No governments have the money to build the infrastructure that's necessary. The approach that Power Africa took was very different uh, than the development approach that, that we at USAID have been taking for, for many, many years and others. Whereas instead of bringing in experts and, and looking at a sector and saying these are all the things that you need to do in order to generate private sector investment. Instead, we started tracking the deals. And we started saying, what are the tools that USAID and the other US government agencies can bring to bear to help just move these deals forward? Recognizing that if one project was facing a certain constraint, that other projects are going to face a similar constraint. Maybe a country has never done a solar project before, so we have to build that capacity. Or they never even had a private power project before, so we build that capacity. So we wanted to sort of demonstrate that getting one deal across a finish line then opens the door for future deals. I think this is really important stuff that you're saying, Andy. I think the World Bank has a statistic that says nine out of 10 jobs in the developing world is going to come from the formal private sector. We want to deal with global poverty. We need to be enabling private sector-led growth. I also think, Paul, what you're saying about if we want to have a demographic dividend in Africa, we got to deal with a series of basics. Some of it's just making sure kids are educated and People pay taxes. But one of the constraints is this issue that, that Andy's been talking about, which is this, this power constraint is an enormous constraint for making this, this vision happen of achieving a demographic dividend. In some ways, I'd argue that Asia's kind of maxed out its demographic dividend credit card. I think China's about to kind of end its demographic dividend. There's other parts of Southeast Asia, certainly Japan and South Korea are aging societies. We're going to see India start to flatten out in the in the medium term. So where the energy and where the opportunity is and the demographic dividend could be achieved is in Africa. And, no but pun we, intended. No, not where the energy right, right? No <laughs> pun intended. But one other thing I think we have to think about, now I know in the development community, it's we don't like thinking about great power competition, but I do think, I suspect that when our friends, folks like Mike Froman, who I think is one of the smartest people who've ever been in government, I really admire him. I think he's a real, an enormous talent. I'm sure the issue of China in Africa crossed his mind. And well, I, of course, it, it crosses all of our mind, but you don't even have to think about it in terms of the great power competition. You have to think of it in the context of what the U.S. government values, what USAID values. We believe in building people's capacity to be in control of their own resources, to be in control of their own future and control of their own destiny. If you compare a Chinese power project or really any Chinese infrastructure in Africa to ones that are pursued by U.S. government or U.S companies or other like-minded countries, you see Chinese coming in, bringing in Chinese labor, who they then leave in the country, and then you open up other, other businesses, leaving behind manuals that are written in Chinese with almost very little capacity building. Compare that with a company like GE when it first came to the African continent. I would say when they first arrived, about 95% of their personnel were expat personnel. Five years later, about 90% were African personnel. So our model was very much about trying to build that capacity amongst Africans themselves. We sat down with Africans. We developed books and guides on how to negotiate sustainable agreements. The Chinese have not been taking those same types of uh, measures to make sure that this is about Africa. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you, you must have seen a lot of Chinese engagement in Africa, and it's evolved over time over your career, Paul. Yeah. What that brings to mind that I think is really interesting, Andy's point, 
is you hear many people say in the context of great power rivalry that the Chinese are playing the long game. And I actually think that's not true. Mm. I think their approach to a lot of these investments is very short term and very transactional. How can they go in and get a contract right now? And I think our approach, um, we're one of the implementers yeah. of Power Africa programs, and I think this Andy's absolutely right about USAID's approach, building the capacity of our local partners is really playing the long game. We're trying to establish long-term relationships because we believe that benefits us in, in the United States for the long-term, creating these relationships. So one of the programs we implement for Power Africa is the East Africa Energy Program, and it's all about how do you build a capacity of local utilities to operate more efficiently so they have the resources for further investment and innovation and expanding access and to energy. And the African governments appreciate this model too. They're actually getting tired of dealing with Chinese exactly. government-driven deals. Um, you know, it's the sovereign debt trap that's being created for them. And when the, the Chinese give loans, I mean, you don't know what the government's being asked to give as collateral. But with Power Africa, these are mostly private sector finance deals. The governments might be on a hook for a guarantee, but not something that that's going to require them to give away resources. So just one more minute on China, because it's a bugaboo of mine. I've it's got an important a, so, issue for us all to yeah, deal with. And I think when you interact with your partners for, with, through the East Africa Energy Program, would they much rather work with the United States or the West than China? Do you get that sense? I think, yeah. So I've seen on, on a number of trips at the utility level, and this is in energy, but it's also in water. Yeah. It's also in agriculture. Yeah, I yeah. see it across the board. People say we we would prefer American technology. We'd prefer American innovation. American partnership. But sometimes the cost they think, well, we can get some Chinese stuff cheaper. So I could I bought this Chinese thing because that's all I could afford, but I know I'm gonna have to replace it. I've heard people say I'm gonna have to replace it in a few years. And I hope that I'll make enough money that when I replace it, I can buy something that's American. Yeah, it, it, and it, it's cost and speed. So one of the nice things about Power Africa and with the New Development Finance Corporation and all of these other initiatives, Prosper Africa, we're trying to make it easier for business to knock on just one door. The Chinese have this vertically integrated model where business can come to them and they can get their technical assistance and their, their loan and insurance and all those things all on a one-stop shop. So we've been replicating that through Power Africa and other interagency models. Yeah, I think we had to borrow a playbook from them. I think we have to give them credit where credit is due. They are fast. They make it easy. I think it's wonderful that we've taken a I, I cue wouldn't from, give them credit. I, I wouldn't say give we take credit. a playbook from the Chinese. I think what we've taken a playbook from are responding to business and saying, this is what we need. So business says government is slow. And so we made it a point to say, we're going to be as fast as we possibly can. We're not going to overly burden you. And we're going to figure out what is that obstacle that's really preventing your deal from moving forward. And we're going to bring together the resources from not just 12 U.S. government agencies, but then we brought in other like-minded development partners. So if it's equity that you need or a feasibility study or technical assistance, we're going to figure out what that problem is. And you don't have to figure out what each agency does and what each uh, development agency does. Let's talk about the how Power Africa works. Give me a couple of examples of some of ways in which the Power Africa has been rolled out. And then, Paul, might, you might tell me a little bit some of the examples of, of the East Africa Energy Program, as well as some of the, the work you're doing in off-grid that are related to this as well. And I also I want to pick apart a little bit the role TDA plays, the Exim Bank plays, because each government agency has a different contribution they can make. So I'll give you a couple of examples. 
First, we've helped the first power purchasing agreements get across the finish line in, in many countries, probably more than 20 countries. Can you explain what so a power purchasing agreement is? It's basically just the deal. It's the, it's the contract for the power project, for the power generation project. So it's, it's the contract to build a solar plant or a gas plant or something like that. An example would be there's this wind project in Kenya called Kipeto that was stuck. OPIC's providing some financing on that, but it was stuck because they realized that it was going to have an adverse impact on a migratory bird species. So they call it Power Africa and they said, hey, can you help us out with that? We actually happened to have a guy on our team who had great expertise in this area and we quickly did a mitigation uh, plan for them. It was featured recently, I think, in a, in a major newspaper, this plan that Power Africa ended up doing. But that's just one example. Other examples include uh, we worked with the World Bank on its scaling solar program where they came into countries and they said, all right, we've got a standard agreement that you can use and we'll provide you all the technical assistance that you need and we're going to run a competition. So they're now getting solar power for the first round. They got eight cents and then six cents per kilowatt hour. Most recently, it resulted in two and a half cents per kilowatt hour for solar in Ethiopia. Whereas when Power Africa first was launched, people were going in and getting 25, 30 cents per kilowatt hour on a deal. So we've helped the price of power come down significantly, which at the end of the day benefits the consumer. It's great. Walk me through one of these transactions where there was different roles for different agencies. Tell me an example of a deal where AID had a role and OPIC had a role and TDA had a role and potentially were Exim Bank before it was kind of shuttered in 2015 to the extent they had a role. Yeah, sure. So They're now up and back in business, of course. There's a rural energy project that we all have been working on for about five years in Senegal with a company called Weldy Lamont and out of Chicago. And they're going to do some rural electrification. And Exim was providing financing to them. To, to export credit for them to kind of export their hardware, exactly. if you will, out from the United States to Africa. Exactly. Okay. And some of their technology, some of their hardware. Yep. You had a feasibility study from USTDA. They're famous for that. They do several things. But one of them is they'll cost share, hire an American firm, an American consulting firm to go out and kind of see how many wind turbines you need for this project or how many <laughs> solar panels, this kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And then you had USAID, you know, on the ground, really uh, talking to the government, explaining to them the value of the, the program as well, as well as the ambassador getting directly involved. And then the Commerce Department was also providing some advocacy. So advocacy where they go and they talk about with government officials about how this project is going to benefit the country and why the technology is a superior technology that will ultimately benefit everyone. And this is going to provide power to thousands of people. And what was the role aid had in terms of, so the aid has a mission in Senegal. Oftentimes, AID is a trusted partner, has been on the ground for many, many years in these countries. They, your, your foreign service officers speak French or speak Wolof yeah. in Senegal. We talk a lot about policy dialogue or you know ongoing conversations. So was it a lot of what AID provided was sort of kind of trust and kind of a conversation? Did they also provide money in some way to in some kind of technical assistance? So AID created the boots on the ground for this initiative. In fact, um, we funded some of the other agencies' boots on the ground as well. But we had expertise, and Paul can talk more about this yeah, as yeah. well, because we hired contractors like RTI to give technical advice to governments. It's basically stables of experts, people who are available for long-term, can be embedded within a ministry to give them expert advice, or a short-term expert that they can draw upon if suddenly an unanticipated need comes up. In Mozambique, for example, we put an advisor embedded with a transmission line company, because we realized 
realize that, all right, it's great to build out new power generation projects, but if you can't move the power from one place to another, it doesn't do you any good. So rather than putting someone on the ground to help come up with new power generation projects, we said, we need to put somebody in the transmission line company to make sure that this transmission line comes online as quickly as possible. Paul, explain to our listeners who RTI is first, and then what are the kinds of expertise that you all provide as part of Power Africa? So RTI is a nonprofit research institute founded in uh, North Carolina in the late 50s by the three big universities in the Triangle area, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, NC State, and Duke University, as part of the effort to create an innovation economy in that Triangle area of North Carolina that's Which they just did. been hugely successful. I mean, hugely successful is sort of doesn't even, I think, when people go visit the research triangle all over the world, they say, how do I copy paste yeah. this, right? I mean, they, you, in essence, transform the economy from tobacco and furniture. To one of the fastest growing areas in the United States, we have the highest density of PhDs in, on the planet in that area. So it has been, it is by any measure, the most successful man-made research park. How many people work at RTI? At RTI, we've got about 6,000 worldwide. In our campus in North Carolina, we have about 22, 2300. What is your revenue? Annually, I think it's a billion. We're about a, we're a billion dollars. So you're the least known billion dollar social Nonprofit. social change yeah. organization in the world. You're like you're like you're an enormous force for good in the world. Yeah, I mean our mission is improve the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. Now, so it's a really important enormous force for good in the world where you guys bring all sorts of experts all over the world to, to solve big problems. Andy was talking about bringing experts. And when I think about experts, I think of RTI. Yeah. So how do you guys play in providing the kind of expertise that's needed for these really complicated projects that Andy's been describing? So we do, as a large organization, we do a wide variety of things. We do international development programs, but we also do laboratory research for the Department of Energy in the United States. And we have folks who do um, data analytics. Uh, we have a center for data science. So we have people who are experts on clean energy, who are experts on a variety of ener energy technology, master's level PhD folks who are available as experts to the Power Africa programs, as well as a lot of our data scientists because data is king in the world and kind of understanding data and helping utilities and private sector partners understand how to analyze data, I think is an important part of, of moving the industry forward. So that's some of the internal expertise we bring to bear. As one example, we've in the off-grid, the Power Africa off-grid program. what does off-grid mean? Off-grid is if you think of the transition from your old landline to wireless, like how do you, how do you move the energy system to wireless? Um, so we have household solar has started to explode. So that means like if, you've got, if, if you're in Washington and you've got a utility company and you get your electricity from a big utility company, that's on the grid. That's on the grid. Now off-grid means- You're out in a rural area. You're, you're out, out in a rural, rural area, area you're not right? on the grid. So you're not on the grid, but there's lots of chunks of Africa that are not on the grid. All right, and the opportunities to put them on the grid are few and far between for the more remote areas. The cost is extraordinary and it's not gonna happen in the near future. So there's been this explosion as prices have come down, as Andy talked about, of availability of household solar. So one of the things that we've been doing is how do we, looking at transactional bottlenecks, as Andy described, how do we 
identify those, break them down to really accelerate this phenomenon. And this so, so if I'm living in a small farm in a r- remote part of, say, Senegal, and I want to get off-grid solar power, is it is it a combination of sort of there's new technologies, the costs have come down, but aren't there also new payment technologies where you that's, talk about that's that? That's the kicker, right? And that's absolutely the kicker, kind of these pay-as-you-go systems. It's on the back of the mobile money systems that really took- Like M-Pesa in Kenya. Yeah, that, that grew- hugely in Kenya initially and spread across Africa has created a platform for a financial model that allows private sector companies to invest and expand the off-grid but, but system. But it's, it's not just about the payment system. These off-grid companies have figured out that they're not selling people electricity. What they're selling people are appliances. So think about it. A person, they could care less how many how many watts or kilowatts? Care, yeah. Not no one's getting a kilowatt in these rooms. Oh, yeah, yeah. How many watts? What they you can care tell about? I, yeah, you can. Right. They go out there and they say, "All right, for two dollars a week, I'm going to give you a mobile phone charger. I'm going to give you a 19-inch television and four light bulbs." And people and say, that sounds oh, like a deal. Yeah, it sounds great. The same amount of money people were spending on kerosene with just like a little flicker of light. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, dangerous. yeah. So people are converting to this. And then usually I talked to a lot of these companies and I said, within a few months, people are upgrading from a 19-inch television to a 32-inch television. And these are people who still have dirt floors, but they figure out how to get the money together in order to get basic electricity. And it's the solar home system companies that are doing this. And what they do is they're figuring out how to squeeze as many electrons as they can out of a tiny little solar panel. We're not talking about the big solar panels that you see on somebody's These house in California or, or solar farms. You're talking about something that might be like, you know, 18 inches by 18 inches in some cases. Instead of your kerosene cost being an ongoing cost you pay forever, you can pay off the, the infrastructure cost of your household solar system. Right. Yeah. And then so you, you, own, and then it. you, use, you, own, you it. own it. And then you use your money to buy appliances or to double the What's size the, of the infrastructure. How long does it take to own own one of those things? It depends. I mean, you can buy them. It's different business models. Some you buy them outright. Some they let you finance over a two or three year period. But the companies are all competing for that space. It, so much so that the the traditional utilities are realizing that they need to change their own business model. Because what's going on is that with increased energy efficiency, they're not selling as many electrons. And with increased pressure on them to try to connect people in rural areas and people who aren't great customers, they face other issues. So they're trying to stimulate the demand. You know, the same way in rural United States, we didn't just uh, electrify rural America and walk away. What we did is we had these appliance fairs where companies like GE came out to rural America and said, now that you're getting electricity, let us introduce you to this dishwasher and this oven. And these are the things that you can get and we're going to finance it for you. This is how we electrified rural America. That's amazing. You know, there's a virtuous cycle you get into of generating economic growth. Paul, talk about the East Africa Energy Program. How do you guys play in that space? So East Africa Energy is, unlike the off-grid program, is about working with the utilities to get at the efficiency gains they need. Andy talked about bringing prices down for generation of electricity. This is really a key issue because in a lot of countries across Africa, Governments think about energy as a human right. It's something about having human dignity if people have access to energy. So there tends to be, from some a regulatory perspective for governments who come from that view, this view that, well, we have to cap the price of energy. 
the retail price, the price we charge to the consumer. So they've got a cost of generation that's really high, but they're basically subsidizing the retail price because they want it to be affordable. What that does for them is they're losing money at the utility level and they don't have the resources to invest in new plants and equipment and new technologies and expand the grid. So bringing the price down, as Andy talked about, is a way, can we close that gap, reduce the subsidies that they're paying, and then give them, as they benefit from more efficiency from lower cost energy generation, give them the ability to expand the grid, give them the ability to invest in new technologies. What's the electrical power landscape going to look like in Africa 10 or 20 years from now? Are we going to, over time, see a lot more reach? And is this off-grid going to solve kind of the electric no, electricity? I, th I think, I, so I actually am optimistic about the seeds that we've planted already with Power Africa are going to continue to bear fruit. Uh, over the next decade. And I think the private sector is gonna become even more and more creative. One, we've helped a lot of governments negotiate their own deals so they know what, they, what to do. The bigger challenge that we've created for ourselves is there's actually too many power generation deals in the pipeline right now in a lot of countries, which is why under this administration, we launched Power Africa 2.0, where we're focusing more on distribution, you know, getting power to homes and industry and transmission lines and strengthening the utilities themselves. But I, I actually think there's going to be- And this is the kind of stuff RTI does, yes. right? Working exactly. with you, right? You know, Andy's point about Power Africa's work paying dividends for the next 10 years, he mentioned private sector. That's a huge issue that governments were, in many cases, for many decades, were very reluctant to let the private sector play in the in the energy sphere in Africa. But that's changing. They thought, well, this is this, this is, is a human a right. This is Everyone a government needs, function. Yeah, Inherently government, government function. function. So th that's a sea change, and it's critical. When and it's did gonna that happen drive, in the last 10 years? Yeah. In Africa, that's changed I mean, in the last 10 years. Now that they can see there are benefits to letting the private sector in. It was a lot of the work that USAID did before Power Africa was launched, really getting governments to start privatizing a lot of their assets. So this sort of USAID team kind of led, sort of also sort of planted the seeds for Power Africa. I think the, the idea and the implementation of Power Africa has been brilliant. I think it's great. There's been talk about trying to bring this to other parts of the world. There's some new initiatives that are coming down the pike. Can you can you just mention some of them? Sure. I mean, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of efforts that have been modeled after Power Africa to some degree. Um, we've got um, Asia Edge. Um, there's America Cresce for Latin America. The New Development Finance Corporation. A lot of the, yeah. the same members of Congress who uh, wrote and supported the Electrify Africa Act spent time with us saying what was working, what what's not working, and how can we make the U.S. more competitive and create take more of an interagency approach. So I think that all of these initiatives, I have a lot of hope for them. I think people have, have gotten the message. I said to my team recently that even if not a single person got access to electricity, the team that's worked on Power Africa has changed the way that we think of that. People think about government. You have private sector seeing government as a true help and also realizing that the amount of money that we're leveraging from the private sector is phenomenal. If you look at the 120 power projects that have reached financial close um, that Power Africa supported in some way, they're worth over $20 billion. That's private sector money. This is very different than others who come in, other governments who come in and just build out the infrastructure themselves. This is a great use of taxpayer money to leverage private sector for development. And how much money was spent on those projects? How much money did the USG spend? 
spend, if I can put it that way. So it's way. difficult to say. So I'm just talking about the big power yes. generation projects, sure. right? Sure. But this also includes the but a teeny projects. fraction, a teeny, teeny yeah, fraction. Yeah, a small fraction. But we've helped 75 million people get access to electricity for the first time. I think the it's U.S. government's probably spent about half a billion dollars doing that. But you're talking about a continent of a billion people. So, you know, and this is over cost, almost yeah. more than half a decade. Think about how much money we spend on all these other things. And this is over the last seven years of what we've spent. So uh, it seems like a lot of money, but you're literally electrifying a continent. And you're leveraging more than 20 times that or 30 times that. You're leveraging 30 50 times to, that. Yeah, exactly. 50 to 100 times, I think we we estimated of what, what the deals that we've done are probably worth based on what we've spent. And once you do it, it's kind of an ongoing change. Yeah. It's not it's not like you have to spend it over and over again. You're spending money to kind of expand it out and expand the footprint. And exactly. it's not an ongoing thing we're putting money into, right? And we're not recommending, we're not just building out things, we're not building out white elephants, right? We're saying these are deals that should move forward. They just need, we just need to grease the wheels a little bit. So you have Power Africa, we have a new DFC. What does the new DFC, let's call it OPIC with additional capacities, what does a new DFC with new capacities mean for the potential for Power Africa 2.0? For Power Africa 2.0, it means that we might be able to participate and take equity in some funds, potentially in some projects in the future as well. I think more importantly, though, it's getting people to start looking at what are the true obstacles for U.S. investment. There are things like currency. You know, with Chinese deals, um, because of the currency fluctuations that you see in Africa, they go to Sinoshore and they pay their 7% and they're covered on the currency issue. So we're putting our heads together uh, across the U.S. government to figure out, is there anything we can do to help remove currency from the Local equation and mitigate, risk. Yeah, mitigate that risk in some way. It's expensive. It's expensive. But what we're doing is we're talking to the private sector and we're finding out, all right, what are the remaining things that we can do to really help you make your investments? We just did a big report on guarantees and sort of rethinking the CDC funded, a, which is a, the British counterpart to the new DFC, funded a research project we did here on uh, on guarantees. <laughs> Is that something you guys will be looking at in the Power Africa space? Well, with guarantees, we've got the DCA team has moved over to, from USAID to the DFC. So we have a pretty robust guarantee project available. And I'm hoping that the new DFC is going to learn lessons from, from sort of that field-driven approach that DCA and USAID have taken. So over the, the last 20 DCA, years. DCA, which was know. USAID's loan guarantee program. Yes, development local credit authority, authority. Yeah, yeah, local, local currency, currency guarantees. Yeah. And so, yeah, the old OPIC had one philosophy about guarantees and USAID had a different philosophy about guarantees. So I think there's some interesting cross, like they took yeah. 50% and I think OPEC took 100% guarantees. Well, and OPEC didn't do local currency guarantees either. Yeah, they've carved out their different spaces, but I think That's they're right. quite complementary now. No, they're complementary now. And there's a now. lot of uh, people are learning from one another, which is positive. You know, I, my hope is, is that the business model of the Development Credit Authority worked well. We did a paper here on the Development Credit Authority with John Boshilevsky. It was designed around kind of the laws of gravity within AID and the quirks of, of the aid system. I think there's going to be some really interesting potential, but one of my concerns is, is that it required a lot of educating and a lot of attention to the AID field staff to kind of get them. You had to basically persuade people who weren't that up on financial terminology to part with hard-won money that they'd gotten to say, hey, 
Paul, mission director in South Africa. I know you've got a limited amount of money, but this would really help further what yeah. you're trying to do. But yeah. you'd have to spend some time educating the folks because that money has other competing uses of it, right? And so I worry that in a in a scenario where the Development Credit Authority team has moved to OPIC, my hope is that they'll continue to provide the same level of coverage to aid staff that will so be they, needed to they've keep They've already created sort of this uh, mission transaction unit within the Development Finance Corporation to make sure that there's this connectivity with the teams in the field, yeah. with AID missions and with just other agencies that are in the field. So I think that'll be an important implementation challenge for the for that because I think the development credit there was enormously successful. And did you use development credit authority when you were mission yeah, director? Everywhere. So I, I was a big proponent because I was when in my early days in USAID before going overseas, I worked on the development credit right, authority. Right, exactly. So I was I was certainly very familiar with it, a big proponent, a big believer in that as an important tool. You know, without the development credit authority, AIDS tool is you give a grant or you pay for some technical assistance. And that can sometimes be a hammer looking for a nail. For a nail, yeah. Right. It's that's not the answer to every development problem. So DCA, I think, is a hugely important tool that can get at some of these other barriers we've been talking about. So absolutely I used it. All right. Programs. So let me just come back, Paul, to the question I asked Andy, this issue about are you optimistic about further electrification in Africa? What's your what are your hopes for the region? You you do a lot of work in the on the continent and you know the continent well. Are you optimistic yeah. about this? I would say yes and principally because of the increasing openness to private sector investment, because that's going to drive in that's going to drive innovation. It's going to drive greater efficiency in the energy sector. Yeah, I'm very optimistic. And a lot of it's up to the African governments themselves. Right. And yeah. I, I constantly remind them that this is a market of fifty plus countries. And if you're suddenly changing the rules of the game or you don't create a market that's conducive to investment, investors will go to any one of those other countries or they'll go to Asia or Latin America or just stay domestic in the U.S. So they have to make sure that people understand the rules of the game and they stick to the rules of the game. Otherwise, investors will walk. Even better if they harmonize markets. You can create a regional energy market where you can trade energy across all of East Africa and investors have confidence that it's going to be managed in a, I don't I hate to use the word common market sense, but it's going to be managed as a regional market. I think that'll drive greater Because a lot of these countries are really small. Yeah. I think technology is going to drive that anyway. Once you can remove the human factor of people making decisions about Political where the power, yeah, where power should move at any given moment and what price, and you turn it over to artificial intelligence and software and you depoliticize it, you're going to see a much more efficient market. Just, just double click on this artificial intelligence component. What do you mean by that? Well, just basically algorithms that will decide where power should go and when. So like at and 7 p.m., I know that in the last three weeks that there's been a surge in in, in this county, and so I know I need to be ready for this surge because yeah. of, of just past And even past across borders as well, and also to use the pricing. What's the ideal pricing? What's the ideal demand? And a lot of this stuff exists already. The question is, is whether just it can be operationalized it. in African context and building trust between the countries. Are you seeing this use of artificial intelligence in your work, Paul? So we're not seeing it yet in the Power Africa program is at the level of being operationalized, but we're certainly talking about it. It's and on we the certainly horizon. have capabilities to kind of explain to people. I mean, the other thing we're looking at is kind of deep analysis of geospatial data and what kind of insights does that reveal on how power should be distributed. That's wild. So there's a lot of stuff coming down the pike. Yeah. Guys, thanks for doing this. Paul, it's great to see you. Andy, Always congratulations. Good you. Really good stuff. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 